just speaking to the friends and family, people looking for jobs, people putting an application to the home office or to the housing service. If you do not have access to that, it becomes increasingly difficult, almost impossible. And of course, it affects your mental health. That's what we found, that a device has an almost instant and very positive impact in people's lives because suddenly they feel like they can get their life moving, improving or get it back again. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. It's been a while since we've talked about digital access on the show. During the multiple UK lockdowns, much attention was devoted to this topic, with a strong response from volunteers and charity organisations to help those in need. Ready Tech Go are an organisation born out of this period. And while the media may not see this as relevant anymore, their work has not slowed down. In this month's episode of the Restart Project podcast, I spoke to Nikos Suslos, one of the co-founders at Ready Tech Go. He spoke about the massive impact that digital access has on people from many different backgrounds and in many different contexts, and about how these issues have been exacerbated in recent years. We also spoke about data poverty, a shift in who was seen to be needing help, and we discussed the upcoming Fixing Factories project that Ready Tech Go have partnered with us on. My name is Nico Susulus. I am one of the directors and co-founders of Ready Tech Go, which is a community organization based in West London that is trying to bridge the digital divide. Ready Tech Go is a relatively new organization. What is it and what drove you and your co-founder to start it? So we started towards the end of the first lockdown. So that was May, June 2020. Me and my co-founders didn't know each other. Well, some of them knew each other, but I didn't know any of them. And we were volunteering at a food bank in Fulham, in the Clamatley estate. And we were delivering food to people and getting to know them. And we became exposed to, for example, on the one hand, older people who were complaining that without access to the internet, they could not do online shopping, they could not speak to their families, they could not access their pension or banking or any entertainment. They were really, you know, left behind. And on the other hand, we were speaking to families where they had three children and only one device, and they someone had to decide which child education gets priority. And we realized that there's not an organization that could help them with access to technology. And we thought, right, maybe we should do something. And then obviously, once we decided we can do this, then we sort of picked a few other people that we knew that would be good with this, with different skill sets. So someone who was good in project management, someone who obviously had a tech background, which none of the original three did, and someone who had a charity background. So it was a joining of forces, you know, friends. You say you found someone who had a connection to tech, but what's your relationship with technology and with refurbishing and fixing before you started doing this project? Very amateur. I, I had never thought of the digital divide before this, never thought of the digital divide before the pandemic, really, or actually refurbished tech. Not that I refurbish tech now, but at least I understand things a bit more. 
And it was the same or less for everyone. And even people we speak to, partners, people involved with it, they say that, you know what, before the pandemic, I had never thought that there are people out there without technology. But because it became such an important part of our lives, it was just everywhere. I mean, you and I wouldn't be able to do this interview, despite the bad connection, if we didn't have devices. Absolutely. I mean, I used to work in the library service years and years ago now. Working in the libraries really teaches you how much people need computers. For a lot of people, that's one of the only places they can get free access to computers. And also what you've suddenly realised is that people don't just need the computer for the things that we imagine people need computers for. They need it for the basic building blocks of life. Like you can't get jobs, you can't get homes, you can't get various different services easily at all now without a computer without an email address that was a sort of not a mistake but i mean as i said our assumption was when we started we had all the people who need to connect to families younger people who need access to schooling so we started with these but we found out such a diversity of need in between and we've helped refugees asylum seekers homeless people people that just need a device to you know put in applications or learn a new language or even to therapy sessions that had moved online or so much it's just incredible different people have completely different reasons for needing a device right i mean it's like so many other things the pandemic has just shown us the problems that already existed suddenly everybody had a need whereas before just some people had a need the pandemic has allowed us to shine i guess a spotlight on these things can you expand a little bit more about what affects having a lack of digital access has on people? It marginalizes them. They feel left out. Uh, I remember in the first lockdown again, there were these ads on TV even that said, oh, get Zone Premium or get this or get the Facebook camera that allows you to talk to your family so they can see you everywhere. And there were people who said, I, I don't know how to use the internet. I don't have a device. They were hearing about all these great things that people are doing online from entertainment, like a quiz to speaking to their friends and family, people looking for jobs, people putting an application to the home office or to the housing service. If you do not have access to that, it becomes increasingly difficult, almost impossible. And of course, it affects your mental health. That's what we found, that a device has an almost instant and very positive impact in people's lives because suddenly they feel like they can get their life moving, improving or get it back again. Our objectives, ethos, values, everything is captured by the phrase, access to technology should be a right, not a privilege. It really came so natural to us and that has driven our organization and our actions from the very beginning. So what does that mean? We fight against the stereotype misunderstanding that access to technology is a privilege. Everyone should have it. It should be something that is accessible for everyone cheaply or even ideally for free and they can enjoy the full benefits of it precisely because it is involved in our lives for so much. It makes us a sort of pressure group. We're not going to go into the business of eligibility criteria and assessing people's needs and financial backgrounds. If you need a device and you've asked and you've been referred to as you clean a device, that's it. And we've been very happy to work with, for example, Hammersmith and Fulham Council and the Royal Borough of Kingston and Chelsea and show them that this is something that's happening in their areas, affecting you know local people, and they really need the help. And they have taken that on board and taken action to ensure that people who, who need help are given that. 
So in short, our objectives are, like with most community groups, to make ourselves redundant, to make sure that ReadyTechGo doesn't exist because there's no need for ReadyTechGo to exist because everyone who needs access to a device has it. And if they do not, there is someone there, be it government, local authority, anyone really to offer that to them. So we're always fighting to make sure that we don't have a job in a sense. And Ready, Take, Go is a black and minority ethnic led group. I guess some of these issues will already be very clear to you. There are already barriers that you were dealing with maybe in your everyday lives, but also connection with family across the world, which the pandemic also made really clear because it's not just the basic building blocks of people's lives that technology gives. It's also the intangible emotional friend, family, love stuff that you actually lose if you are disconnected from people. And the pandemic, I guess, has made that super clear to people. But maybe it was a bit more clear to you all when you were coming up with the organization in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. It has been invaluable to have the majority of our directors, the people leading this. And I must say, we're all volunteers. We all have other full-time jobs. So we've been doing this at our spare time. It has been great to have people from minority backgrounds giving us insight because it's not just them. It's also, as you said, their background and their families and their friends and what insight they can give. The vast majority of our beneficiaries are of ethnic minority backgrounds. So, of course, it was great to be able to sympathize and for them to see that, oh, we're not just giving them a device and that's it, see you. We are there to empathize, understand and work with them. What has always stayed with me was the story of uh, one of our volunteers who said that I really wanted to join Ready Take Go because I was one of the kids that didn't have a device growing up. So I really understand what it means. So I'll do everything I can, whether it's refurbishing the device or teaching skills or anything, everything I can to make sure that they don't have to go through this like I did. Because as I said, it marginalizes you, especially nowadays and especially with children. How did the pandemic amplify the need for devices that the people that you work with were facing? And I guess secondary to that, you're a new organization. So was the pandemic part of why you began and started in the first place? We're very much a pandemic baby. We wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the pandemic for many reasons. We weren't really aware of the need. It's not something we had thought of before. Schooling was a big part of it. And it became clear, I think it was the 4th of January 2021, when they announced that schools will close. That was the third lockdown. And overnight, Ready to Go became from this small, we could really do it at a spare time thing to a massive scale organization. Up until that point, six, seven months of operation, we had had maybe 30 people filling out our form to donate their devices. And then from the 4th of January, when schools closed and suddenly it became part of the national discussion that schools are closing, but kids don't have devices, we were having 30 people a day offering to donate devices. You can imagine how difficult that was, but we we rose to the challenge and we did very well. It was during this time that this call went out for different organizations across London, across the country, working on such projects to get together. That's how we got involved with Restart. And then afterwards, we had a fixing scheme where us and a few other organizations, devices that we got and we couldn't fix in-house, we would send to Restart volunteers across London, they would fix them, and then we would donate them further. And it worked very well. And then the opportunity arose to develop this even further into a partnership on the Fixing Factories project, which is about to launch.
mean, we've spoken about students a little bit. What other groups are there who are especially in need? And do you want to say a little bit more about what kinds of needs they have? After the 5th, I think, of March last year, when schools reopened, we were expecting sort of decline in, you know, referrals and uh, needs, but there was none. There was a change in the sense that it wasn't children anymore. It was, as I said, homeless people uh, that need to be rehoused. I remember going to a lady in Fulham who was in a hotel. Her house had burnt down. Her whole family was in Brazil and she really needed a device to be able to talk to her family, to talk to the housing officers and really to put her life back together. So people who want to find employment, people who, as I said, want to learn a language, but even unique cases like someone who, as I said, wanted therapy sessions because everything had moved online. I remember at some point in the pandemic where it became compulsory to scan all those codes, you know, to enter restaurant or bar. I kept thinking that, you know, we come across people every day who do not have the ability to do that. It really made me think, which I wouldn't have done before Ready, Take, Go, about the people who do not have such devices and how it affects their daily lives. So something we we wouldn't think twice about I've become, and I know my fellow co-founders have become more aware of. We've also worked closely with refugees and asylum seekers, and in particular, up until a few months ago, we were working out of a small office in a, in a hotel in Earl's Court, the Ibis Hotel. They were also housing Afghan refugees there. So we were sort of sharing the same roof. We started to get a lot of referrals of recently arrived Afghan refugees. And again, it, it meant the world to them. You feel like you're able to get your life back in track, in a sense. That's what they were reporting. Now we can slowly get things together, whether it's talking to the family or talking to the home office or that that sort of thing. It really does make a, a huge difference. I didn't expect it when we started and it always amazes me. Yeah, I mean, that's it, isn't it? Until you meet the human beings behind the headlines, behind all the ideas or whatever, it doesn't really fully come home to you the human circumstances people are in. I imagine it's very moving. You forget how magical and important and powerful these everyday bits of technology can be when people have need for them. As a whole, have people become more aware and active in this area or has interest died down post-lockdown? So we've sort of like touched on the fact that it's changed post-lockdown, but have people become more aware and more active in terms of the work that you're doing? I think so. I think at least in West London, we operate in the three boroughs, Hammersmith and Fulham and Kensington and Chelsea and the city of Westminster. And there is much more of an understanding. As I think a lot of people now think that, Oh, I just got a new device, a new laptop, a new tablet. I don't need my old one. What do I do with it? Obviously, some people are still just putting them in the bin or putting them in the cupboard. But what has got out that they can donate to an organization like us? We work with the council closely. We worked in a project to help children in education called Tech for Kids. So we do have an interest in the supply side and we still have an interest in the demand side because we work with organizations. So we ask for everyone to be referred by an organization. So that organization knows that, oh, okay, I see they helped this person. I have someone else. Could you help them? So it quickly spreads. And that was very important when we started because we decided to do it in this way. We very quickly got a very good grassroots community operation. We very quickly had partnerships with organizations who knew the people that needed help better than anyone else. They're experts in their field. And part of the reason why we've been able to help 
people that have so different needs is because we've worked with organizations that support people from different backgrounds, whether that's ethnic, socioeconomic, or anything else. Yeah, I mean, what organizations have you been working with and who are the people who are donating the laptops and technology to you? We've worked with wonderful organizations like the Barons Court Project, which helps homeless people. We've worked with local authorities, Hammersmith and Fulham, you know, the adult social care team or the family and children's team. Same with Kensington and Chelsea and a bit with City of Westminster. We've worked with organizations supporting refugees like Care for Calais or West London Welcome. Even organizations, for example, in the early days, the Riverhouse Trust, I think, which supports people with HIV. So the list is is endless in a sense. It's very difficult to do it justice just by starting to mention names. Organizations that work with, for example, the Eritrean and Somali community in West London or organizations that work with Polish people in West London. It's so varied and, and it's amazing. And that's what I really enjoyed. Although it was very difficult in the third lockdown because it was just a lot of work. It was also amazing because we talked to so many people and so many different and lovely organizations. In terms of who are the people that donate, all sorts of people donate because if you have one device, if you, you know, uh, make the breakthrough and you get one device, it's very common that you get a second one. So suddenly you have a first one that you may not need anymore. But it tends to be, we've seen Hammersmith and Fulham and in Kensington and Chelsea, a south to north movement. So people from the, generally speaking, very crudely, more affluent southern areas in Chelsea, for example, or in parts of Fulham, will have spare devices to donate, which will then tend to move in the crudely speaking, less affluent areas of the north of this boroughs, White City in Hammersmith, for example, or North Kensington. So that, that's uh, the sort of movement. And it's been actually the case since, since we first started. And we always wanted it to be a sort of bringing the community together sort of feel that neighbors will be helping neighbors. And it has actually happened in some cases without them knowing that, oh, your device went literally to a person around the corner and the device that you now have is from that neighbor over there. And that's kind of amazing. Yeah, that is nice. You know, it'd be nice if those neighbors knew each other well enough to to be able to share without an organization having to come in and take it from one place to the other. But at the same time, it is also kind of moving that that has happened. I lived in London for a long time and worked in complicated communities. I mean, I used to do a job where I would work all across the borough of Enfield. And so you would see really affluent well-to-do communities and you know really struggling more marginalized communities and you'd know because you'd walk or get the bus between them how close they were but you were kind of aware that the people in those communities weren't necessarily aware of that and it's funny again like some of the areas that you work in people think of those as like the rich areas or the posh areas right of London but in fact they're not rich or posh in their entirety as you're saying there is affluence and there is a lack of affluence right next door to each other which it sounds like you've sort of been drawing out taking from the rich to give to the poor quite Robin Hood like but a bit more consensual than Robin Hood absolutely I mean what you said is something I have heard from a few people saying that oh but why are you based in West London surely you know everyone is rich there it is the worst thing anyone can tell me and ready to go in general and it's partly why there is such a need because for so long people even locals have thought Oh, okay, you know, everyone is rich here, everyone is rich there. And people have been left behind. And the food bank where we met, the place where it all started, was in the Clematley estate in Fulham, surrounded by million-pound houses. And it is one of the most deprived 
areas in West London. A lovely place, amazing people, but, you know, using those crude measures they have, one of the most deprived, and people tend to forget that. It's, it's something that we find, these assumptions that, oh, well, Kensington and Chelsea, but everyone's reached the Well, clearly not. And I mean, after Grenfell, you thought that, you know, we would be past that because everyone saw, and we have worked with Grenfell families who needed a device. And yeah, it's been totally humbling. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Grenfell has changed some people's ideas around those areas of London for sure. But, you know, these attitudes still persist. Have you been able to witness the impact of your work on the people who receive the devices? And are there any memorable cases that you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, we had said that we want to know who we're giving the device to. Also for practical reasons that, let's say, if we give someone a device, if they have a problem with it, if something's not working well, that they're able to approach us and tell us and we can help them. And it's been much better than, let's say, giving an organization six devices and saying, right, this distribute it yourselves because we develop that sort of personal relationship. We've always aspired to get to know our beneficiaries. I remember one case where we gave a device to a family and maybe a few months later, they got back to us and said, we really can't thank you enough for all your laptop has done for us. My daughter's grades have picked up. She's much better at school. And also my son is now able to learn English. They were, you know, English was the second language much better than he was. And especially, as I said, during difficult periods where there was a lot of work and he was very busy getting those messages. I remember sending them around to the group and saying, we're doing something right. We're getting it right when we get those. You never do it for the praise obviously we don't do it for the money we're volunteers or any sort of prestige so this is what we get when you hear that yes what you've done has made a difference to someone's life I remember one person who he was an excellent writer and he sent us this email sometime later after we gave the device and he had this quote these people they didn't just give me a device they gave me hope and I thought ah, okay we've done something right this is it. It's it, intangible impact, right? Exactly, yeah. They're very hard to prove to people. You can't measure them. Yeah. You can't measure and quantify hope or joy or love or connection or whatever. But it's so powerful in these moments when we can say, oh, yeah, something I did gave somebody this intangible thing. When you hear that you as an individual have helped another individual or helped a community in these kind of ways, that's the kind of thing that makes life worth living. Physical tech isn't the only factor involved in digital access. Can you tell us about data poverty and what needs to be done in that area? Yeah, absolutely. We think of the digital divide as having three pillars. One is access to device, equipment. The other one is access to data, broadband, and the other one being access to skills. Ideally, we would like to be able to offer something to tackle all three. With data, that's obviously the problem. If you just give someone a device and they do not have the internet or don't know how to use the internet, you haven't really done much. So we've experimented with different ways of doing it. What we were doing for the most part was getting people 4G tablets or 5G tablets now. We gave them a SIM card to a particular network, which we loaded 
with data and every month for a few months, we renewed it on our end at no cost to them. Device at no cost to them, data at no cost to them. And that too really made a difference to the extent that we have one gentleman who now after 16 months, he is still using it. He has family back in Morocco. He's using it for that. He says, oh, I listen to music from my native country. I talk to my family. He had some personal tragedy recently. It was important for him to have that. So it really makes a difference. But that is not sustainable on a large scale for us. So we've worked with local authorities, for example, to try and introduce broadband in council housing, for example, or for certain families. That was a good thing with the lockdown. When schools closed and it became part of the national agenda, the powers that be, let's say, were more eager to listen to you because you could say, right, this is what we've noticed. These are the demographics, the families, these are the areas where people do not have the internet. We cannot really help them because, okay, we may pay for it for a certain amount of time, but we have limited funds ourselves. After that time, they themselves may not be able to use it. And some companies were really trying to make things difficult. We're saying that, oh yeah, but then you have to change the contract and we'll have to do background checks and financial checks. I think things have changed now. There are some mobile phone companies, for example, that are more eager to make this easy. There are some schemes to donate your unused data, but we need to cover a lot of ground and there needs to be some arrangement for people who do not have access to data or Wi-Fi because it really is restricting people from unleashing their full potential in many ways. Absolutely. And what's the most common fix that you've come across when refurbishing donated devices? At some point when things got very busy, we all had to learn to fix devices. So I did. Most common issues were always dead batteries. We've never had problems with devices that had bad software, like devices that are too old to run Windows 10, because we always said, as soon as we get a device, you need to have your data deleted or we'll do it for you. But the first thing we'll do is install Windows 10 because you cannot give someone a device that obviously has security risks or isn't quick enough. We always operated on the mantra that second hand does not need to mean second quality. And we'll get those devices as good as we can. And if it fails the crude criterion of would you feel comfortable using it, would one of us feel comfortable, then we wouldn't really give it out if it's too slow or too damaged. So you're one of the partners for the upcoming Fixing Factories project. Can you tell us about that project and what you're doing as part of it? Yeah, so the Fixing Factories project, it's an exciting idea and we're very excited to be a part of it. The fundamental idea, the jumping off point is that people have devices to donate and devices that need to be fixed. And they also enjoy the process of seeing them getting fixed, but also fixing them themselves. So you make the fixing, which in our case, Ready to Go, it has been happening in our offices or our volunteers spaces, you make it more public. So you have these spaces in Camden or in the West London Waste Authority, in our case, where people can come and give it to us, we save it, fix it, and then give it to someone who would have better use for it. And we're very excited. We'll be working out of the West London Waste Authority in Brent, which is, by all accounts, a refuge center. But again, in many ways, it does more than that. It also offers hope because people who would otherwise just put the devices in the bin, they come there and we'll have a team of volunteers We'll fix them. And then we'll work with community partners in that area or people, organizations we already know, to give the device a second life and say, 
right, here you go, make this yours. So it really is a pioneering project. And of course, I mean, you can imagine the e-waste effects and the environmental effects. And you know how harmful all these devices can be to the environment, from the plastic to all the electronics involved. We are putting this back into use. And we've always loved the research doing that, saying that, no, your device can have a new lease of life, can be and should be reused. And this project will really bring this to the fore for everyone to see. Giving these technologies a new lease of life, but then you give those technologies to somebody who hasn't got access to them and you give that person a new lease of life too. Working with fixing factories, how will that help you to expand the work that you do at Ready Tech Go? As I said, we started with these three bars and we've always wanted to expand beyond that. The West London Waste Authority is outside of this border, so already by definition we're expanding geographically. And by expanding geographically, we're expanding in terms of meeting new partners, organizations in brand in that area. And it also helps us get to another level because we can approach volunteers more, we can expand the organization. We've had a chance to hire someone that will bring new passion, new energy, new ideas, and they will help us drive this forward. Because after a point, you know, it becomes sort of echo chamber. You'd need new people in. We're very excited to have that happening. So it really is a step up for us. The organization is growing organically, sustainably, and Fixing Factories is a cornerstone of this growth. It was wonderful to hear from Nikos about how Ready Tech Go grew out of a genuine desire to help local communities. They've now helped over 500 people by giving them devices that will be integral to their lives and are only expanding these efforts. Our discussion really highlights how far-reaching the issue of digital access is and how many people still need help. At the Restart Project, volunteers have been indispensable in our own efforts to make a difference in this area. And we're excited to see what comes next. And can't wait to open the Brent Fixing Factory next month in partnership with Ready Tech Go. The Brent location opens on April the 23rd at the Abbey Road Household Reuse and Recycling Centre. And you can find out more details about that at therestartproject.org Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org, where we've also set up a fundraiser. So if you've enjoyed this episode, do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.